More than once and more than we would like, the media has exposed us to recent incidences of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. On Gesundheit with Jacobus this Saturday morning, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist Eric Newhouse, who works at the Great Falls Tribune, will discuss this hot and timely topic. He is passionate and very knowledgeable about the effects of war on both active and retired soldiers. Tune in as Eric Newhouse and post-traumatic stress disorders take center stage this Saturday morning from 8 to 11. Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all-natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowein. All right, what an introduction. Good morning to everybody. Uh, this is Gesundheit with Jacobus. I am your host, Jacobus Hollowein. Thank you very much for tuning in. <clears throat> Excuse me, this uh, program today, it is uh, kind of a somber topic it's not kind of it really is a somber and tough topic when you talk about post-traumatic stress disorder uh, we know it exists i've i've mentioned it at times during my lectures that i've given the 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 future problem of post-traumatic stress disorder and then i remembered that i've had a guest on years ago eric newhouse from great falls and no knew that he was also very passionate about post-traumatic stress disorder. So I looked up his website, which is ericnewhouse.com, and I found that he has written another book about it. And so we're going to discuss with Eric his experiences, his knowledge, his research. He is an investigative reporter. But uh, as always, when we talk about uh, topics of health, healing, and healthy lifestyles, the key is that we're here to educate, inform, and entertain. We're not here to diagnose, treat, or cure. We're here to give you information that may be helpful for you or somebody close to you so that you can get some guidance, some direction, and maybe find a second opinion from a physician or a specialist of your choice that who may help you to, to move forward in the right direction, to start seeing the light, to see that there is hope, and, and to, to, to start experiencing that as well. So uh, thanks again for tuning in to Gesundheit with Jacobus. Let me tell you a little bit about Eric Newhouse. He has earned his reputation as a crusading journalist winning the Pulitzer Prize in 2000 for a year-long series of studies about alcoholism. We had him on, on the program several times about this book. It's called Alcohol, Cradle to Grave. Highly recommend it. It's, it's an easy read. It's a good read. You just have a hard time putting that book down because you, you, you connect with the people he is talking about. Very, very interesting true stories. Uh, through personal in-depth interviews, he has seen the devastation caused by post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the ongoing trauma for veterans from Vietnam and other American conflicts. Newhouse's crusade is to get the young men and women who have served their country on the battlefields the help that they need and deserve. Eric Newhouse has been a journalist for four decades. The first half of his career was as a reporter correspondent and bureau chief for the Associated Press, working in Baltimore, New Orleans, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Pierre, South Dakota, St. Louis, and Charleston, West Virginia. 
As an AP correspondent in St. Louis from 1980 to 1984, Newhouse was active in the local chapter of Sigma Delta Chi, the Society of Professional Journalists. During his term as president, as president, he secured a grant from the 7-Up Company to bring some of America's leading journalists to St. Louis to discuss the political, moral, and ethical issues facing that profession. That six-part series of programs called The Media and You was aired live by the local PBS station KETC. The second half of his career has been with the Great Falls Tribune, where he is currently the project's editor. And he is even taught English, or I don't know, we'll talk to Eric uh, at the Great Falls University. Now, on his website, ericnewhouse.com, Eric writes, quote, I've come to believe that my mission is to amplify the voices of those who would otherwise go unheard so that the public and the policymakers understand the consequence of our social policies, how they affect real people. Over the years, I've tried to be a social conscience. I've written about alcoholism, drug addiction, mental illness, and the correction system. Is this an oxymoron or what? But the PTSD... TBI, TBI, a traumatic brain injury, and vets issues really tug at my heart. It seems consummately wrong to me to take our most patriotic young men and women, throw them into combat, and then throw them away when they begin to develop problems. That's just wrong. We have throwaway diapers, pens, and cell phones. But there, the list should stop. Human beings can never be a throwaway commodity. Saying all that, Eric, I welcome you to the program, back to the program, I should say, and it is just exciting to hear your voice again on the radio. Good morning, Jacobus. Uh, thank you for reading that excerpt. I'd forgotten what an articulate rascal I really am. It was a pleasure <laughs> to hear that. You wrote it, and I it, it touched me, and it, it shows me the, the depth that you use in your work. Uh, there is a mission, and I think that once we have a mission in our life, whatever that mission is, it, uh, it becomes kind of a goal, and uh, it, 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 it inspires us daily to get up and do the work that we do. I bring a different perspective uh, to this war, uh, and I think that's the heart of that passion. Um, I was drafted during the Vietnam War, served from 1968 to 1970, never got to Vietnam, mercifully, never wanted to go, always hoped I'd miss it, and did. Uh, but when I came out, I could see the devastation uh, among my colleagues, uh, and I really never put those dots together adequately. One of my close childhood friends uh, was a uh, was a doctor in Vietnam uh, and came back. Uh, he had married a nurse there, and they appeared to be a very happy couple. I saw him a couple of times when we were living in Washington, D.C., uh, and then inexplicably, uh, they divorced. They went different ways, uh, and I heard several years later that he committed suicide. Oh. Um, it troubled me, but I really never connected that uh, with uh, as a service-related uh uh, service-related incident, uh, but in retrospect, uh, I'm sure that he had PTSD, uh, and I'm sure that uh, that was just one of the suicides uh, that trouble us even even today. Um, but that since we don't understand why they're occurring, uh, they they just kind of get swept under the rug. Yeah, it is, and and. 
you know, that is a personal story that you have. And I know that as a reporter, you are visiting the people, you go to the people, you talk to the parents, the, the surrounding family, friends, uh, people who knew the individual, and you find out more about the person who is dead or who is dealing with traumatic, uh, traumatic stress. That that must give you mixed feelings. Uh, it, 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 it gives you, uh, it gives you sadness. It, it, it gives you a joy about the phenomenal individual that signed up at some point to go to the war and then all of a sudden see that change happening. What is it that made that person snap? Why is it that the person is so depressed? Uh, why is this an issue that uh, is being addressed? But obviously, even the people, when I read the articles, both the ones on your website, one last week in the Boston Chronicle, uh, another one that was sent to me by my daughter, you see that they're still scratching the surface. It seems that they have a, the, 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 the professionals have a hard time getting a grip on this topic. How do you deal with that as an investigative reporter? Do you feel that you understand it better than what you read in the government reports or the government therapies? We certainly have different views. Um, as you point out, it's really, really difficult uh, to understand something that is basically an invisible wound of war. Uh, it's not like someone who comes back uh, with an amputated arm or an amputated leg uh, or with battle wounds. These are emotional wounds that you really can't see. Uh, you can see some behavior change, um, and you never know whether it's going to be long-term or short-term. Uh, you never know whether it's going to get better or whether it's going to worsen. Uh, and so there's there's a real problem in dealing with, uh, with with emotional injuries because these kids look normal on uh, on their face they're doing everything they can to look normal yeah. um, but they're uh, they're struggling inside you know I, I talked with a vet up here named uh, Jack Jager and Jack told me uh, human beings were never meant to kill each other uh, he said um, uh, that some of his friends uh, would be muzzle to muzzle with the enemy and could not pull the trigger and died as a result. But he said to me, I wasn't that way. Uh, he said, um, I was always the first to pull the trigger. Uh, I violated every moral precept there that had been taught to me. Uh, and when I came home, it was very difficult for me to live with myself. Wow. Uh, he said, I... Uh, uh, got an apartment, uh, but I really built a hutch uh, outside of the uh, apartment in the woods, and I lived there with my dogs, uh, and I was always on alert. Uh, I was always waiting for the enemy to come. Uh, and he said, one day my mother looked at me, and she said, Jack, what happened to you over there? And Jack said, I couldn't bear for her to know what I really was, so I fled. And he's uh, living now, I think he was originally from Michigan, living now uh, in Great Falls. He's working as a long-distance trucker because it's the most isolated thing that he knows uh, how to do. Yeah. Um, he is sober now for the first time in many years. He's been married, I think, three or four times uh, and uh, uh, considered himself normal. And I guess the world considers him normal, but he's certainly not. Uh, he's suffering from scars that uh, have been with him for decades. Yeah, and so it's that kind of uh, that kind of desperation uh, that I want to help. It's uh, those people uh, who need that help need to know. 
that it's available, and the American public needs to know that uh, there are a lot of folks out there uh, who are struggling with the invisible wounds of war and need treatment. Yes. Folks, I'm talking to Eric Newhouse, investigative reporter for the Great Falls Tribune, right here in Montana. Eric has been on in the past as a Pulitzer Prize winning author for the book Alcohol, Cradle to Grave, real life stories of people in a rural town somewhere in America. And that happened to be Great Falls. And I figured that that could apply to any town, including Bozeman, Montana, and Livingston, of course. Uh, his new book, it's called Faces of Combat. PTSD and TBI, post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injuries. One journalist's crusade to improve treatment for our veterans. Uh, you can find more about the book and how to order it when you uh, go to his website, ericnewhouse.com. ericnewhouse.com. Even if you just read the first chapter, I read the, the, you can download the first chapter from the book and just go ahead and read it. It's about 13 pages, 12, 13 pages. Just very heartwarming, not only for the story that you read, but also for the statistics that Eric gives in the book. And I think, Eric, when you are a reporter like you do when you write a book about this, your involvement, it, it must be hard to, to, uh, to actually step away from it because, number one, I know you've had this passion since I actually met you face-to-face -face back in 2005. You mentioned to me that this was a new thing you were working on. Do you do you take it with you, the stories that you hear, or are you able to step away from it? Oh, no. Yeah, those stories are always with you. Uh, those people are always with you. Um, I had been very, very conscious uh, of the kids coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and be very conscious of the fact that they needed help. But I was looking to do some sort of, um, some sort of book, some sort of project uh, that was on the back of my mind, yeah. And then on the 4th of March, 2007, uh, today I remember well because I was flying to New York to help judge the Pulitzer Prizes at Columbia University. Yeah. There was a young man in, uh, in Helena named Chris Dana. Uh, Chris was uh, a former member of the 163rd Infantry, uh, a National Guard uh, battalion that had been sent out a year or two before to uh, Iraq. Chris had come, had been through a lot of combat, and he'd come back scarred. Uh, he, he was troubled by what he'd done, troubled by what he'd been through. Um, he couldn't bear going to uh, guard drills, and so he'd stopped going, uh, and the guard had threatened to uh, uh, to give him a less than honorable discharge, basically threw him out. Yeah. Uh, if he didn't start coming back to guard. Yeah. Um, he couldn't do it. They gave him a less than honorable discharge. Uh, and on the afternoon of the 4th of March, uh, 2007, put a gun to his head and killed himself uh, yeah. and started a process uh, in which Montana became a national model for assessing and treating post-traumatic stress disorder. That is amazing that that uh, triggered, uh, you know, that, that that has to come out of a situation like this. And and I saw indeed in chapter one of that book uh, where you talk about Chris, w one thing that really made him sad is that when he came back from his first tour, he really would like to spend more time with his buddies that he had been in battle with. And they totally started splitting him up and he didn't have his friends around anymore. He had to start working with, with other soldiers 
and uh, I, I can understand the, the thinking, but why is it so hard to put somebody with friends and uh, at least one and that you feel a camaraderie and somebody you can share stories with uh, just to get it off your chest? And I think that was that was one of the things, the way I understand it in your story is one of the things that really bothered him, that he didn't want to go back and, and do the start all over again with, with, with brand new people. That was one of the things that came out. Uh, that was perhaps an unusual circumstance. Uh, it's not something that happens that frequently. Yeah. But the underlying motivation is uh, is clearly uh, important. Those kids uh, have gone through hell with their buddies. They depend on them uh, to watch their backs. And they really, really need to have that support group when they come back home. Yes. Uh, and uh, that's something that we have learned. Um you know, one of the things I think that's important uh, is that the state of Montana applied for money um, to uh, maintain its uh, its um, drill weekends uh, for the 90 days after the soldiers came back from combat. Now, previously, we'd, uh, we'd just sent them home and told them to take 90 days off, rest. Uh, they didn't need to come to a guard drill because obviously they'd done what they had been trained to do. Uh, but Chris's uh, example showed us the, the fallacy in that those guys really needed to have time together. Yeah. So what Montana did was start something that's become a national program. It's called the Yellow Ribbon Program. Yeah. And it involves uh, having these kids and their families come to a hotel or a motel, it's like a social thing. They aren't out by uh, the barracks with guns and that sort of thing. Uh, they're there with their wives. Uh, there's a nice dinner. There are seminars uh, on mental health, uh, on uh, uh, on financial management, on anger control, uh, a bunch of things that uh, these guys need to know. And their wives get uh, a better understanding of who everyone is and where help is. Uh, and it allows them to together as a family yeah. uh, and that's been just really really instrumental in reintegrating these kids back into our system mm. uh, and mercifully it's something that the National Guard Bureau in Washington DC looked at and said wow that makes sense and so it's begun to implement this uh, this program nationwide uh, that is that is uh, awesome somebody had the inspiration and all of a sudden we, we jump on the bandwagon on a real program that actually works yeah yeah there's a second thing that uh, that has been really important, and that is that the uh, Brian Schweitzer uh, and Randy Mosley, uh, the governor and the adjutant general of the National Guard, um, put together a task force, and that task force basically looked at uh, how you assess uh, soldiers coming back from uh, from combat for emotional problems. Uh, and they decided that since many of these things don't surface uh, for six months or more after a return home, uh, that we needed to have uh, a periodic assessment system in place. So they got uh, counselors um, and uh, and upgraded their counseling staff. We now are assessing soldiers every six months uh, for the first two years after they return from combat. Uh, and the results have been remarkable. There have been a number of uh, uh, a number of soldiers who have been referred for help uh, and who have benefited from it. This uh, 
this assessment program was added by Max Baucus into the recent defense authorization bill, and it now has become a national law as well. Every National Guard soldier, every reserve soldier, every active duty soldier uh, will get uh, mental health assessments for for the two years after he or she returns from combat, uh, and that's that. That will go a long way toward helping these kids uh, and toward saving some lives. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, something needs to be done. You know, one thing that surprised me, and I don't know if we have enough time before we get to the to the to the short break here that we have, Eric. You see, you watch Hollywood movies these days, the violence on movies, the violence in uh, video games, uh, the violence that kids are exposed to still seems to be nothing compared to what they actually experience on the battlefield. No, it's really not, uh, but it starts them in that direction. I talked with uh, a retired Army colonel uh, down in Texas who was in charge of training troops uh, for combat, teaching uh, basic American kids uh, how to kill, kill quickly, kill effectively, uh, kill efficiently, kill um, just instinctively. Yeah. Uh, and he tells the story of a kid. Uh, yep, break time. It is actually, yes. Uh, we are coming yeah, to I a, can, well, can you hold that story? Uh, yeah, I can hold that story. We'll get back to it uh, when we come back, okay? That's you could be you could be on the radio, Eric. <laughs> oh, I can hear that music coming. Talk All to right. you in a moment. All right, thank you so much. Stay tuned. Eric Newhouse from Great Falls will be with us soon. You and I were talking a moment ago uh, before that break. Uh, you had asked me about uh, the violence uh, in the video games and on television yes. uh, and how that played into um, latter-day combat. And I was I was beginning to tell you when that break came up uh, about a colonel who, had, uh, who was in charge of training uh, young soldiers at West Point uh, how to kill. And he found the perfect uh, training tool. It uh, honed their reflexes. Uh, it desensitized them from the sight of uh, and the sound of blood and killing. And it rewarded them for killing. Hmm. It's called Nintendo. And it's available to every American teenager in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, but the second thing that I think is important about this uh, is that if there is a lot of uh, question and concern about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and it is clear that PTSD builds with, uh, with increased um, stress as there is increasing combat, um, post-traumatic stress disorder is more likely to occur. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder uh, whether some, and there's a, a question of why some soldiers are more resilient to it than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I wonder is whether there are soldiers who have trauma in their backgrounds uh, and it, it's lying there latent, but uh, when they get into combat, then it, it kicks up again and makes them more vulnerable to post-traumatic stress disorder. Right, okay. And I don't think anybody has really studied uh, soldiers and the mental condition that they come into combat with, uh, come into the Guard or into the Army with, 
And I think that's something that we're going to need to do. I think as a nation, we're going to need a baseline now looking at the emotional health of our of our soldiers before they go into combat yes. to see uh, which ones are, are potentially vulnerable, which ones uh, we need to be uh, very careful with, uh, and which ones we should not overload. You know, that's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, that is actually the article that my daughter sent me. It's called, uh, was written yesterday, it was produced yesterday by Alicia Chang, the AP science writer, and it's called Military Experiment Seeks to Predict PTSD. So they're trying to, um, it's it's an article and it says over here, uh, Two days before shipping off to war, Marine uh, Private Jesse Sheets sat inside a trailer at the Mojave Desert, his gaze fixed on a computer that flashed a rhythmic pulse of contrasting images, smiling kids embracing a soldier, a dog sniffling, sniffing blood oozing from a corpse, movie star Cameron Diaz posing sideways in a midriff top, troops cowering for safety during an ambush. A doctor tracked his stress levels and counted the number of times he blinked, electrode wires dangling from his left eye and right pinky finger. Sheets is part of a military experiment to try to predict who's most at risk for post-traumatic stress disorder. Understanding underlying triggers might help reduce the burden of those who return psychologically wounded if they can get early help. PTSD is a crippling condition that can emerge after terrifying event. Car accident sexual assault, terrorist attack, or combat. It is thought to affect as many as one in five veterans returning from Afghanistan and Iran. So anyway, the article goes on, but that was kind of the beginning of the article. And uh, so this kind of ties in with what you just mentioned. Yes, it absolutely do. it absolutely does, and it's something that we need to be doing. Yes. I'm glad to see that the Army is, uh, is beginning to do some baseline testing because it's, uh, it's absolutely critical. Um, then we need to follow it with testing after these kids get back. Uh, yes. Frequently, um, post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't occur until uh, oh, five or six, four, three or four or five, six months after um, these kids get back uh, when they discover that they really don't fit into the society that they left. Uh, I talked with a uh, with a Vietnam vet uh, who told me that uh, one day he was uh, uh, one day he was in Vietnam uh, and on patrol. <laughs> then uh, that evening they flew him home. He flew into uh, Seattle, and the next morning uh, he was uh, down in New Mexico. Uh, and in 24 hours, uh, he had he had changed from a warrior in Vietnam uh, to an ex-warrior at home in I think Albuquerque. And uh, he remembers taking a shower that morning and washing the dust of Vietnam off his body uh, and thinking, uh, there goes two years of my life down the drain. Uh, But when he got home, he discovered that he wasn't that same person who left. Uh, He was having bacon and eggs that first morning Um, and looked outside and saw a school bus full of children uh, going off to school. And he remembers thinking to himself uh, that it was interesting to him that he would be less concerned about whether that school bus blew up and all those kids were killed than he would be about whether the hash browns were uh, were warm and were served with ketchup. Huh. 
mass. Isn't that something? Yeah, it 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 is uh, a frightening thing. Yes, it is. Post traumatic stress disorder uh, is a very very difficult thing to understand. Uh, our doctors and psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, really have not uh, 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 an adequate idea of what it is or why it happens. Uh, basically, it seems to be a normal reaction to uh, <clears throat> to stress. Uh, if, for instance, uh, I'm walking down a street and somebody jumps out of an alley and uh, flashes a pistol uh, and tells me he's going to shoot me. Um, all kinds of things happen within my body, uh, and I'm on hyper alert immediately. Um, but then the guy goes back uh, into the alley, and I don't see him again, and I'm hyper alert for a while. But um, I'm basically um, calming down, and after a couple of minutes, uh, my breathing is normal, my pulse rate is normal, uh, my heart rate is normal, I'm, I'm I'm back to myself again. But the kids who come back you know, with prolonged periods of combat uh, come back hyper alert always. Uh, they are, even in the safest of settings, uh, they're convinced that uh, they're going to be ambushed, they're going to be attacked, uh, there is a threat out there. Um, they're constantly checking rooftops for snipers. They're constantly looking at windows to see if somebody's pointing a gun at them. Yeah. They're constantly checking exits, uh, trying to figure out how to get out of harm's way. Uh, when they drive, they're likely to drive 90 miles an hour because uh, you know, slow drivers die in, uh, in Iraq. Uh, speed is your friend. Uh, they may be driving down the other side of the road uh, to confuse an enemy sniper uh, who's aiming at them uh, in a normal conventional lane of traffic. If there's uh, a trash can or a dead animal beside the road, they figure it may be uh, bombed uh, or wired, and they will swerve to get around it. Yeah. We, as as uh, normal civilians, need to realize that, that we are going to see abnormal behavior as these kids come home, and we are going to need to understand it and deal with it and find ways to get those guys help. Because for them, it's a totally natural thing to be doing, uh, even though it's totally abnormal in our society. Eric, is it, uh, in your research, is it uh, different today than it was, uh, let's say, after the First or Second World War that we experienced? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, Post-traumatic stress has been around ever since uh, ever since men fought. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there is a fascinating story uh, yeah, that came out a week or two ago. Um Sophocles was a Greek general who also wrote uh, a couple hundred plays. Seven of them survived today, uh, and two of them actually uh, have to do with warriors returning from combat. Uh, and uh, described post-traumatic stress disorder pretty succinctly and pretty well. And the army is now beginning to put on two of those plays by Sophocles, to returning combat vets uh, to show them that this is normal uh, and has been uh, uh, a part of our culture for thousands of years. Huh. Um, it's too early yet to know how it's working because this is just something that they've started doing. But yeah, it's been around forever. Hmm. The difference is that uh, uh, in previous wars, we were fighting 
an organized army uh, fighting across the line. Exactly. World War One and World War Two. Yes. Uh, you were in foxhole shooting at people with uniforms uh, that were different than yours. Yes. Today uh, we're in a guerrilla warfare, as we were in Vietnam, uh, and you don't know who the enemy is. You may be walking down the street uh, and a young lady, you uh, uh, know, in a, uh, in a, um, a gown or a cloak uh, passes you and nods, uh, and she may uh, go five steps, turn around, pull a gun out, and, uh, and try to kill you. Yes. Kids may uh, try to kill you. Yes. And so the guys that are out there have to be alert against everything all the time, and they may end up shooting. Yes. Uh, unarmed children or unarmed women that they think uh, are suspicious. Uh, they may take a gesture wrong and, and uh, kill someone. You know, they may actually, uh, I, I'm told of uh, free fire zones uh, where everybody is considered to be an enemy and soldiers can go in and you know, basically kill everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. So it's a it's a totally different warfare. Uh, and it, uh, we also, you know, during World War One and World War Two, um, had uh, R and R, rest and recreation, pull a guy out of the line, send him to Hawaii, give him uh, a week on the beach uh, to recover, then put him back into combat. Yes, these guys uh, are out in Iraq and Afghanistan now for twelve months, um, just uh, with combat that may be, uh, you know. It may be um, two or three or four or five times a day that they're shooting someone or being shot at. Yeah. Uh, this goes on for 12 months, uh, and um, 10 days before they're scheduled to go home, they get an extension of duty, uh, and they're held in position for another three months. Yeah. You know, that, that um, uncertainty uh, and the, the amount of combat is unprecedented. Yeah, and we're seeing unprecedented amounts of uh, numbers of kids who are coming home with emotional injuries. Mm-hmm. The Rand Corporation suggested in a report a year ago that one in three American soldiers, American combat vets, uh, is likely to come home with post-traumatic stress disorder, with traumatic brain injury, or with major depression. Mm-hmm so severe that it will require treatment for a period of time, perhaps for the the soldier's entire life. Yes. And that is not just the soldier itself. It's also the people surrounding that soldier. It could be the wife, the girlfriend, the parents, uh, the The the, children. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it is such a a, uh, deep and and wide-ranging group of people who are affected by uh, those who come back. Yes, it absolutely is. Mm. Um, I talked with uh, uh, a couple up here, uh, Dave and Daniel Belcher, uh, and Dave was, uh, he'd been over in the Persian Gulf. Um, he'd, he'd been, uh, uh, I think he'd been a gunner on one of the uh, uh, tanks, and then after they'd uh, shot tanks up, uh, he and his men would get out uh, and go down trenches, uh, shooting and killing people that uh, that were uh, enemies in the trenches. Uh, it was a dangerous way to live, and he was highly stressed a lot of the time. When he came home, uh, uh, he had a huge load of anger. 
hypervigilant. Uh, he patrolled the backyard at night uh, to make sure that his uh, uh, that his children uh, were safe. Um, but it was the anger that was the terrible thing. Mm-hmm. He uh, would blow up uh, without provocation. Uh, his wife never knew when it was coming. Uh, he would scream, rage, yell, throw things, rip telephones out of the wall. Um, he would threaten her, never actually hit her, but he uh, he, he would you know, get in her face and, and uh, scream at her. Um, she lived in fear of him for the first couple of years uh, and then finally said to him, I can't stand this anymore. You need to move out. You need a safe place. So we got an apartment uh, about two blocks away from uh, from um, the home that he had lived in uh, with his wife and daughter. Daniel. And, mm-hmm. and yep, Daniel. Did, and uh, he um, uh, has really improved since then. They've uh, changed the meds for him. Uh, he's, he's not had a meltdown in a while. Uh, uh, every time he felt one going, uh, beginning to come on, he'd go off to his uh, apartment and, uh, and calm down there. And life was getting better, but Danilo couldn't forgive him. Uh, she had this, uh, you know, this ongoing anxiety. And when I talked to them, uh, I finally looked at her and said, "You know, you have secondary post-traumatic stress disorder." And she said, "Yeah, I think I do." I said, "You need to see uh, uh, a counselor yes. uh, and get that resolved." She uh, she agreed, but she resisted for probably four months. Uh, she she couldn't bring herself to do it. And finally, I said to her, "If you have a choice between feeling happy and a choice between feeling angry, why do you choose anger?" And she couldn't answer that. So she huh. finally uh, went to counseling and began to take her daughter. And uh, the next time I saw her, she gave me a hug and thanked me and said uh, she was feeling so much better, and it really was uh, a wonderful feeling. Hmm. Wow, what a story! Help is there. Yeah, help but, is there. Yeah. Help is there, uh, but the families need it as much as the warriors. Yeah. We have a caller who would like to get in touch with you, Eric. Uh, caller, good morning. Thank you for joining. Your name, please. How can we help you? Good morning. My name is John. Hello, John. Uh, I would like to ask Eric, um, now that women um, are um, engaged in the combat and right there up on the front lines, is there a um, is there a propensity for uh uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome for women, uh, and how are they handling it? Is it are the women uh, experiencing experience it more than men? Um, can you give me any uh, facts on this, or you know, an answer to that? Yeah, I absolutely can. Uh, women are are much much more at risk uh, than men are. We were as a gender. Uh, men have been hunters and gatherers, uh, and we have typically protected uh, our spouses uh, who were to be the nurturers uh, in our society. We've put these women into a role that's very different from anything that they have seen, uh, and they have a greater cultural gap uh, going into combat and coming out of combat than anything that uh, uh, that men have. In addition... Uh. There is a second factor that uh, yeah, that is horribly, horribly troubling, uh, and that is um, that the women, men in combat do unconscionable things, uh, and they may do them to other women, even uh, you know, their colleagues. 
be close to men without being sexually active with them. Sure. Uh, and talk about uh, uh, rape or talk about uh, sexual abuse. Mm. Uh, there is, uh, in fact, it's become so common that it's called, uh, yeah, there's a term for it. It's, uh, it's military sex abuse or military MST, something like that. Right. But it, it is a whole phenomenon now that, uh, and they're estimating that uh, that up to 70% of the female soldiers um, come back and have experienced some form of uh, of sexual abuse uh, um, by the time they return. Right. Um, the restrictions that are being put on the soldiers, um, starting, uh, I think, basically in Vietnam and also in the current yeah. conflict, um, that has a lot to do with it. In the Second World War, um, especially, you're, you knew who your enemy was, and you and there was no quarter. And I yep. think that helped re- relieve a lot of that that stress. Uh, and now um, it's you know the winning of the hearts and minds, and patrolling through the streets of villages like we did in Vietnam, and we yep. were totally restricted. You just didn't know who was going to fire upon you, and that. That caused me to be an angry young man when I came back. Uh, I can I can remember that. And I'd like to ask Mr. Jacobus one thing. In his uh, store, do you carry breadfruit tea? What tea? Breadfruit. Bloodroot, yes, I oh, do. No, no, I, no, 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 breadfruit. How do you spell that? B-R-E-A-D-F-R-U-I-T, breadfruit. No, I never heard of it. Uh, supposedly um, uh, a good tea for um, a high blood pressure. I just wanted to throw that at you because I was going to stop by your store. Oh, well, thank you very much, John. I appreciate that. Let me look into that. Okie doke, sir. All well, right. Thanks for taking my call. It's a great yes. show. I appreciate that, and I hope you continue listening till 11. You bet. Thanks, John. Okay. Stay tuned. We will be right back. was an interesting call that we uh, we just had from John, and he was asking something that I was just thinking about asking, Eric, indeed about the effect on women, PTSD in women soldiers. And so we're not just talking about the wives for the soldiers who are the male soldiers who are coming back or the spouses who are uh, left behind at this point and then deal with the stress of combat as soldiers come back, return home. We are talking also about women who have been in battle and as they, how they experience the war uh, through that. Now, Eric has some uh, information about that. Eric, I would like to talk about it a little bit more, give us some statistics. Eric, good morning. Thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning, Jacobus. It was a great question by John. It was. And I was really pleased to get it. Yeah, I was scrambling to put my hands on, uh, uh, on a document that I needed, and uh, just came up with it a moment ago. Good. There's a really good book by uh, a woman named Helen Benedict. She's a journalism school professor at Columbia University, and the book is entitled The Lonely Soldier, The Private War of Women Serving in Iraq, and it's all about uh, female vets. In the course of that book, uh, Helen quotes several recent surveys conducted by researchers at veteran centers that show that nearly a third of female troops are raped by their com- comrades, while three-quarters are sexually assaulted and 90% are sexually harassed. It's so common that uh, that uh, there is now a new acronym, MST, Military Sexual Trauma, uh, which is sexual trauma uh, induced by a female soldier's uh, comrades. 
She also notes that the Defense Department acknowledges that despite its reforms, some 80% of military sexual assaults are never reported. Mm. Isn't that staggering? Yeah, would that be because, uh, why would that be? Why would it be so high, 80%? Um, Are you afraid? afraid? uh, Yeah, it's a he said, she said. um, uh, And frequently, uh, uh, there's a phenomenon called date rape, uh, not date rape, um, command rape. Command rape. And uh, um, enlisted female soldiers... um, uh, are taken advantage of by by the the officers, oh. either senior NCOs oh. uh, or uh, the uh, lieutenants and captains and majors, uh, and they never report that because they will be uh, accusing a senior officer uh, of violating them. And uh, those who do report it find that generally uh, the uh, the aggressor uh, says that it was consensual sex. Uh, they have no way of proving otherwise. Uh, the captain's word is accepted uh, over the uh, female specialist's word, uh, and uh, there generally never is uh, any result from reporting it. So a lot of the women who are taken advantage of uh, figure it's useless uh, to try and report it, never do. But, you know, you talk about consensual sex. Now, let's say that women would report what is going on. It is one thing if you have a, you're a superior officer and you are being accused of uh, rape, and you say, you know, this was it was consensual sex. But if that name of that specific officer comes up on a regular basis over several years, don't you, as an investigator, you or somebody in charge in the army or navy or any of the military forces, come to the point and say, how come his name always pops up? I would think that that would be the case, uh, but it goes even beyond that. I don't think that any superordinate has any right to have a relationship with a subordinate. That's a good point. Uh, I, I think that uh, you know, that ought to be declared a crime. And if uh, you know a, a captain is having sex uh, with a with a female soldier uh, who is subordinate to him in rank, uh, that that ought to be considered uh, grounds for court martial. That's yeah, that's excellent. You know, I, I teach out at the University of Great Falls. I've been teaching out there for 20 years. Uh, and uh, in those 20 years, uh, you know, there have been some um, very attractive young women who have been students of mine, uh, and there have been several of them uh, who have suggested uh, that we have some sort of a relationship. Um, <clears throat> I'm married, obviously, so I can't... Uh, um, uh, but I could not even otherwise, uh, because that is a, it's a sacred relationship in its own way uh, between a, a teacher and a student, uh, and uh, introducing new elements to that, uh, sexual elements, relationship elements, uh, is just flatly wrong. Yeah. Some of my colleagues I know have bent those rules, uh, but I, 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 I think that's, that's something I can't do and shouldn't do. Hmm. You mean, and if, I think the yeah. same thing applies uh, to uh, to the military. Mm-hmm. I think uh, you know if I if I'm an army captain uh, and uh, I, I should not be having any personal, physical, emotional, sexual relationship uh, with uh, with people that I'm serving with. Yeah, we're talking with Eric Newhouse from Great Falls. 
about post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, traumatic brain injury. Eric, uh, TBI, can you explain us a little bit more about that? Yeah, traumatic brain injury uh, occurs when uh, when there's an explosion nearby and your brains get shaken up. Uh, Basically, uh, what it is, uh, there are a lot of um, IEDs, uh, improvised explosive devices, which are roadside bombs, uh, and they are... uh, they're designed to uh, go off beside a Humvee, uh, blow it apart, kill the people in it. Yeah. Um, there are also uh, a lot of rockets uh, that are uh, exploding nearby. We're getting a lot of soldiers uh, who who are losing consciousness. Uh, basically, they're getting shaken up by the bomb blasts, uh, and their brains are uh, are being you know, splashed against the inside of the skull. Uh, there is uh, some cellular brain death, uh, death that's immediate, uh, but it also is an ongoing thing because uh, some of these uh, cells, brain cells, that are being slashed uh, up against the skull later die. And so there is a continuing um, deterioration, brain deterioration, uh, as a result of TBI. Wow. We are finding that it's, it's much more prevalent than uh, than we ever had seen before uh, for two reasons. One is, uh, well, three actually. One is that there's more of these things. Uh, we never had to deal with IEDs before um, or roadside bombs. But beyond that, we have better uh, triage, better medical care, and we have uh, Kevlar body armor. Uh, which is protecting uh, the, the body of, uh, of our soldiers. So we are bringing more wounded soldiers home than we ever have uh, in the history of this country. Uh, we're, I think during World War One and World War Two, it was about a two-to-one ratio, uh, two wounded soldiers for one dead soldier. Huh. Um, by Korea, it, uh, it was increasing... Um, and I have the statistics in my book. I, I can't remember them exactly. I think it was like five or six to one in Vietnam. Uh, but today, uh, with the Kevlar body armor and uh, tremendous medical care, we're sending home 16 wounded soldiers for every uh, soldier who's killed. Hmm. We're seeing more amputees than we've ever seen before, but we're also seeing a lot more uh, brain injuries. Yeah, the blast that would have killed soldiers um, two wars ago uh, now is uh, creating traumatic brain injury, and these kids are coming home. Uh, traumatic brain injury is not unlike post-traumatic stress disorder. It has many of the same symptoms. Uh, there's a, a, a brain loss. Uh, there's uh, a confusion and an anger uh, about uh, not being able to comprehend in the way that they previously had. Frequently, uh, it's mixed in with depression, um, and uh, it's uh, it's something that we have just begun to diagnose. Uh, it's something that we have no idea how prevalent it is, although the uh, Department of Defense estimated recently that uh, as many as 360,000 soldiers coming back from Iran, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan may suffer from traumatic brain injury while another 300,000 may develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Hmm. Those are 
staggering, staggering numbers. Yes, yes, yep. absolutely. That's a lot of kids uh, that are going to be needing help. Yeah. Now you uh, talk. Uh, you you would like to address actually some examples. Uh, we we heard the story of anger uh, for Dave and Danielle Belcher. Uh, you also mentioned the word the word hypervigilance. You, you're talking actually about different symptoms that uh, happen to a soldier who comes home. Um, you already say that the Rand Corp uh, corpor- Corporation estimates that one soldier in three, one in three soldiers will return with PTSD traumatic brain injury, and or major depression. And uh, you mentioned that the symptoms include hypervigilance, anger, Mm -hmm. nightmares Mm -hmm. and flashbacks, booze Mm -hmm. and drugs, Mm -hmm. divorce, homelessness, and also legal problems. And I'd like to hear more about it, but we have somebody who would like to weigh in today. Caller, thanks for joining us. Your name, please. How can we help you? Hi, my name is Sue. Hello, Sue. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a son who is um, going to be going into the Marines. And, um, excuse me. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah. Yep, I know. Every parent's worst fear. Yeah. yeah you've got to back them. You've got to trust. Uh, you've got to be confident. Uh, you've got to be supportive. Uh, and it just eats your insides up. Yeah. Um, yep. I, have, I have two questions. One, mm-hmm. um... Is there anything you can do to prevent it or at least get him thinking in this direction so he can work through it while he's over there? And then the second one, he will be an officer. So is there anything he can do to help his men and women? Wow. Yeah. Send my book over with him. Uh, that, that will be a good start. One of the things that we know uh, is that it's very, very important uh, to maintain close family ties uh, and to to prepare everyone in advance um, before he leaves. Make sure that uh, the family is close around him. Make sure that uh, he's got a support system. Uh, if he's married, uh, make sure that uh, he and his wife have uh, have good, quiet, private time together uh, so that they can. Uh, they can build those bonds in the strongest way that they can. While he's over there, uh, he needs to be alert uh, for changes in himself. He needs to be looking for isolation. Um, when he's isolating himself, uh, yeah, he's going to be getting worse. Uh, he needs to be helping, giving to others, watching them. Uh, there's a whole checklist of syndromes that he'll need to be uh, looking out for in his men. Uh, and when he comes home, he'll need to be looking uh, for those same symptoms in, the, in himself. One of them is the hypervigilance. Yeah. Um, if he can't reset his uh, emotional clock back to normal, and he's constantly feeling that he's under threat, uh, he'll that will be natural for a while. But if that goes on for more than a couple of months, uh, then uh, he probably will need to seek help for himself. One of them is anger. Uh, one of them is depression. Nightmares and flashbacks are common among uh, uh, these kids. And if uh, if he begins to get night terrors, um, find him help quickly. Um, a lot of these kids are going to self-medicate with booze and drugs. Uh, and if you see an increase uh, in uh, in the times that he spends with his buddies, 
seek him help. Uh, above all, stay close and talk to him about what he's going through. Um, a lot of these soldiers, when they come back, are afraid of what they've done. They can't talk about what they've done. Uh, and they begin to isolate themselves, and the isolation only makes things worse. Uh, and so if you see him withdrawing, um, find a way uh, to, to break through that and talk with him. And if it's too severe, you'll find a counselor that he can talk with. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sue, and all the best to you. God bless. Uh, this is exactly what we're talking about. Uh, indeed, family that stays behind. And you led your son that you have done so so well uh, to educate and inform and value, give him values, him or her, if it is your daughter going to combat, uh, give him values to, to all of a sudden let him go. Uh, Sue didn't say how old her son was, but she says he's going to be an officer, so he must be a little bit older, I would say. Um I'm just curious. Probably graduated from college, probably early 20s, I would guess, Jacobus. Yes, I see. It's uh, Well, she did mention the Marines, and I, I go back to that article that I mentioned earlier. The military experiment seeks to predict PTSD, uh, where they do talk indeed about uh, uh, Marines and some of the tests that they are doing. And I mentioned earlier... Um, uh, let's see. The work is funded by the Marine Corps, Veterans Affairs, and Navy Medicine. Last year, about 1,000 Marines were recruited before leaving for Iraq. It says over here, um, they're talking to these soldiers before they go to combat, and it says, groundbreaking research, research published last year on adult survivors of child abuse suggests that specific variations of a gene increased their chances of developing PTSD. Scientists believe there may be many other gene variants that contribute to PTSD risks. Marines also underwent a blink test to gauge their startle response and neuropsychological screening. This is all done before they go to battle. They filled out questionnaires and were interviewed by psychiatrists with a checklist to diagnose PTSD. Um, before deployment, let me see here... Um, Actually, this also talked about Fort Hood, where the uh, shooting was a few weeks ago. Uh, similar research is ongoing 1,300 miles away at the University of Texas at Austin, where scientists have collected detailed health data from 178 soldiers from nearby Fort Hood, where re who recently came back from Iraq. The base was the scene of a massacre on November 5, when an army psychiatrist opened fire, killing 13 people and wounding dozens more. The shooting has not affected the research, which enrolled first-time deployed soldiers. Unlike the Marines, the soldiers filled out monthly questionnaires online while in combat that tracked their experiences, such as whether they saw a roadside bomb go off or knew of a wounded body. Before deployment, soldiers submitted a DNA sample, had an MRI scan of their brain, and inhaled carbon dioxide as part of a stress reaction test. Early results suggest soldiers who reacted more strongly to the CO2 test and who were exposed to more stress in the field showed greater PTSD symptoms. This is what Chief Researcher Michael Telsch of the University of Texas Austin Laboratory for the Study of Anxiety Disorders. So uh, there is indeed some work done ahead of time. Uh, uh, her son is in the Marines and 
maybe he did uh, submit to one of these tests. Maybe he was one of the ones to uh, who was able to uh, to get some research done before he goes to combat. Certainly, I do hope. Yeah. I, I do know that the Marines tend to be in the thick of things, uh, and they tend to be uh, uh, they tend to be the guys uh, who try to carry on the hardest, uh, do uh, much of the uh, worst work. Uh, and who come home trying to hide the damage that uh, that they've been through. Yes. I talked with a Marine Corps uh, lieutenant colonel, uh, a guy named Mike Zakia, uh, who's up in um, Rochester, New York, uh, Westchester, New York, I'm sorry. Mike was uh, just a great guy. Uh, his wife, Marcy, remembers him as, as being a perfect gentleman, just a sweetheart of a guy. Um great physical shape, a great sense of humor. Uh, she just loved him to death. And Then he went off to, um, to Iraq, and his job was to teach the Iraqi soldiers how to be effective. There goes that music again. There goes the music again, Eric. Uh, you, I know we can talk this whole weekend and not even get done with everything you have to say, but we yep. have to run to a short break. Uh, please keep that story, so when we come back, we'll jump right on that about uh, Mike uh, Zakia. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. Caller, good morning. Your name, please. How can we help you? Why, this is Daniel R. Peterson, turning new leaf. Thank you, I, Daniel. I'm, yeah, I'm going to ask an intelligent question on a new day because you switched over to Saturday on me. Yeah. Uh, uh, there is a healthy psychology uh, maxim that goes like this. The past is past and gone. The future has not happened, and it may not uh, be what you think it's going to be, but the present is a gift, and you might as well unwrap this present and enjoy it today. So the point here is that uh, we uh, experience the past, and uh, we really don't have to be at that experience of the past in the now. We were created by our Creator as an image of that's perfect in its own unique way, and uh, is part of the treatment of trauma advice on rising above the past, that the past is just a reflection of a state of consciousness that's in the past, no longer our way of seeing things now. Uh, are there uh, psychological treatments of healing that uh, are working on our unconditional love for ourselves so that we can rise above the uh, ghost of this past? Hmm. Interesting question, uh, and there are a couple of answers to it. Um, the first is that while the past is past, it is also um, uh, in our present. Everything that we do changes uh, the way we think, changes the way our brain operates. Uh, that's a, a theory called neuroplasticity. Uh, and, and basically what that says uh, is that everything that we did in the past affects what we now do in the future because it affects the way that our brain operates. Um, the second is that there is a, a um, form of therapy which is called mind-body bridging, uh, and it seeks to do exactly what you're saying. Uh, it seeks to um, eliminate the past and to focus on the present. And what that does uh, is it's, it suggests that the combat vet uh, who is Lying in bed at night, for instance, uh, reliving the uh, the experiences that he uh, that he's been through, 
worrying about you know, whether there are terrorists out there uh, lurking in the backyard, wondering how, how he's going to deal with tomorrow. Instead, focus on uh, on the things that are around him. Uh, perhaps listen to the tick of a clock and uh, concentrate on that reassuring, physical, non-threatening sound. Uh, experience a breeze um, uh, through an open window. Uh, feel the softness of a blanket. Uh, concentrate on on the senses yeah, and uh, and live in the present uh, and begin to. Um, eliminate some of those uh, uh, terrors from the past. Uh, and there are people who swear that it works. Yeah. There are others uh, who think it's baloney, uh, but uh, it, it, it has helped a number of people. Yeah. Yeah, you sound like a, a person that talks about God, so do you think that the power of prayer will kind of consume these, this misqualified energy that we set out in the past so we can uh, feel more wholesome in the in the present? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's what you believe in. Uh, and if you think it works uh, and you're optimistic about it, it probably will. Um, it is definitely, it's definitely a part of uh, of our life, or many people's lives. And I think the military uh, comes across like uh, prayer is definitely a part of their, of their daily ritual. Yeah, there is just a piece on public radio about there, it's come almost too much. The fundamentalist Christians are really pounding their way of uh, looking at prayer. So it's it's kind of like a Christian system rather than a Muslim system from the other side. So we have to be careful we don't go to one extreme or the other, however. Yeah. Well, it's a good comment, Daniel. I All appreciate right, well, that. Good, good day. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Become educated about somebody, uh, about something that's going on, that has been going on, as Eric mentioned earlier ever since man has been fighting each other. And so, and, and not just each other, but other traumatic instances in the past that have affected the way we feel and the way we think and the way we react to things happening to us in the present and possibly in the future. Eric, you were talking about the story uh, of Mike, Mike Zakia. Uh, would you please yeah. continue with that? Yeah, Mike Zakia was a... Uh... Uh, Lieutenant Colonel in the Marine Corps, uh, and was one of the ones who saw just tremendous, tremendous, uh, conflict when he went over to Iraq. Uh, he was in charge of training Iraqi troops, uh, and he told me that he would, um, yeah, there would be a sniper who, uh, frequently shot at him from, uh, deserted buildings, uh, up on a hillside. He would gather, gather the Iraqi troops behind him, and they'd make a, a run up the hill to try and, uh, Find it and kill this sniper. Yeah. He says uh, the sniper always would uh, run through deserted uh, buildings up there, and he could see the gun flashes um, from in front of him and hear the bullets whizzing uh, past his head. But he said the Iraqi soldiers behind him were also shooting around him, trying to shoot at the sniper. And he said he was convinced he was going to die, but he never knew from which direction the bullet would come. Hmm. Whether it would be a shot from behind him, uh, whether somebody would shoot him from the side, or whether the sniper would get him from uh, up front. Yeah. He told me that um, they went to uh, Fallujah and fought in uh, the big battle in Fallujah. And he was uh, trying to clear a courtyard. Uh, he had four or five soldiers with him, uh, and they were, uh, well, yeah, they were, uh, uh, I guess, going building to building. 
and he would uh, go up a stairwell and never knowing what would be around the corner uh, if someone was there he had to kill that person uh, before that person killed him uh, and it was just terrifying work told me that he was in combat in a uh, uh, in a courtyard uh, he looked up and saw uh, three insurgents uh, with a rocket pointed directly at him everybody else dove over the wall he went forward shooting uh, they shot the rocket at him it missed, but hit a rock wall behind him, detonated, uh, and blew apart his shoulder. Uh, the army wanted to fly him back to uh, Germany, airlift him, but he refused. Um, he said, give me some morphine, let me get a night's sleep, uh, bandage me up, and I'll be back in the morning. Hmm. So he came back in the morning with a broken shoulder um, and led his troops uh, again. Some of those troops um, got Christmas off. And they went home, uh, and a bunch of them uh, were captured and uh, uh, and interrogated and tortured, and then released. Uh, and those uh, that survived came back. And Mike said he had to sit in the uh, interrogation room uh, as they uh, debriefed these soldiers on what had happened, and they talked about being beaten, being whipped, being burned, being electrocuted. Uh, having body parts cut off, being uh, uh, drilled with uh, electric drills. He said it's just astonishing uh, the number of things that uh, these people did to each other. Wow. Uh, and he also said it was like being raped. Uh, every time one of the one of the soldiers in his command came up and talked about what had happened to him, uh, it was just like multiple rape. So when Mike came home, he came home in a different man. Um, he had anger that uh, that would come out of nowhere. Marcy couldn't figure it out. Um, he had memory loss. Um, he could never remember uh, the people that they'd met, uh, the things that they'd done. Uh, he's since been diagnosed with traumatic brain injury, and it's quite probable that uh, the TBI is, has uh, destroyed some of his memory and some of his brain function. Mm. Um, she talked about how, well, he... Uh, Never could stand uh, loud noises, uh, and on the 4th of July would hunker down in a bunker in the basement uh, trying to avoid the fireworks and all the happy merriment that uh, innocent Americans inflict on combat vets, uh, which just is uh, sheer trauma for most of them. Uh, But it was the anger that uh, his wife, Marcy, was most worried about. She said, you know, I never could figure out where it was coming from. Uh, He just got this look in his eyes, and all of a sudden, yeah, I'd try to flee, and he'd, uh, she remembers once uh, seeing that look come into his eyes. She dove for the bathroom. Uh, managed to get the door shut and locked. Uh, it was a stout wooden door, and he beat on it for a while, but he couldn't uh, couldn't break into it. Uh, and for the next half hour, 40 minutes, she listened as uh, all the furniture in the living room was methodically destroyed. Wow. Uh, uh, he splintered every chair, busted every uh, table, um, you know, shattered all the pictures, uh, and left a mound of rubble in front of the uh, bathroom door where his wife was cowering. Wow. Now, finally, uh, he kind of came to his senses and realized that uh, he'd gone over the top and he needed to make amends, so he went off to a florist shop to see if he could get some flowers for his wife. It was just before 5 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and uh, the 
florist was closing at five o'clock and uh, the clerk didn't want to sell him any flowers. Mike grabbed some flowers and said, I want these. And she said, we're closing. He said, I want these, threw a $20 bill at her. She threw the change back at him and he caught it in his left hand and grabbed her around the throat uh, with his right hand, was pressing her up against the wall and choking life out of her. When he suddenly realized what he was doing uh, and ran out of the florist store with uh, with the flowers for his wife. Now, I submit to you, what's wrong with this picture? Uh, a Marine Corps lieutenant colonel uh, with problems like these. Um, combat does terrible things to human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, what a story! What a story! Yeah, and that, is, and that is one of them. That is that is one. Uh, just in Mike's life. Um, how long ago was this, Eric? How how is he doing now? He seems to be doing better. Um, he is in. He's actually a stockbroker in Westchester, New York, uh, in his civilian life. Uh, and as Marcy explained to me, we are so lucky that we're not dependent upon the Veterans Administration. We have the money to go out and get private therapy, and we're doing that. He's getting better, but uh, she said uh, if we had to rely on the VA and wait for appointments uh, and just uh, you know get what the government has to offer, uh, yeah, he probably would be around the bend by now. Mm. I don't think that we have, as a nation, have thought about PTSD when we started, uh, when somebody in Washington decided to start a war or get involved in a war, an existing war, uh, that yeah. we were thinking about the ramifications that it would have on uh, on society. I'm sure that that's uh, the case. In fact, I think that just as a rough general rule, for every dollar that we put into the war machine, we ought to put a dollar into the recovery machine to help the kids who come home. Yes. Uh, and that ought to be just a general rule. where We ought to budget that up front in, in advance. You know, in the old days, if you wanted to start a war with uh, somebody else, you would always walk in front and everybody else would be following you. And if uh, the leader would get killed, war was over. Now now we, it's all it's all uh, orchestrated from uh, from the capital. And uh, we sent kids to war who barely able to tie their own shoes. Yeah, it's a terrible thing that we've done. Uh, we're uh, we are really taking our, our well, and that's another thing that yeah, that is mystifying to me. Back during Vietnam, uh, there was a draft, and it threatened everyone equally, and everybody was involved. Today, that's no longer the case, uh, and the administration has made it a point not to make it the case because they know how uh, how dangerous it is to uh, to be trying to draft uh, the sons and daughters of uh, doctors and lawyers and, and, and such. Uh, so instead, we're relying on mercenaries, uh, but we are also um, pulling from two other resources. One of them uh, is the poverty draft. We're drafting uh, kids who come out of poverty who think that uh, the money that they make in the Army is going to be the best money that they'll ever make. And uh, these are kids who tend to come uh, out of the lowest echelons. They tend to have seen the most violence in their lives anyway. They tend to come from the most crime-ridden sections of town. And they tend to be the kids uh, who probably have suffered the most trauma already in their adolescent life before they hit the military. Yeah. 
the second group that we're drafting is the most patriotic. Uh, they are the sons and daughters uh, of our former warriors, uh, and military service has been a tradition in their lives. Uh, and their dads probably are Vietnam vets, uh, many of whom have uh, suffered PTSD and continue to, to uh, suffer from it. Uh, there's probably PTSD running through their households, uh, and they may be um, secondary victims of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, that they got from their dad growing up. Wow. Uh, and so the kids that we're sending in uh, uh, into battle, I, I submit, tend to be those who are most at risk for PTSD anyway. You're listening to the voice of Eric Newhouse, a crusading journalist from the Great from Great Falls, working for the Great Falls Tribune, also a professor at the Great Falls University in journalism and English, and he has written a new book. It's called Faces of Combat, PTSD and TBI, One Journalist's Crusade to Improve Treatment for Our Veterans, to Improve Treatment for Our Veterans. It's available at Barnes & Noble at uh, Amazon.com. And uh, by all means, go check his website, ericnewhouse.com, and then look at, uh, read already the first chapter of the book, download it, read it, whatever you like to do, but get involved. We appreciate that. Uh, Caller, good morning. Thank you for joining this morning. What is your name? How can we help you? Good morning, Jacobus. This is Vinny. Hello, uh, Vinny. Good I morning. I got a little comment about yeah. modern wars and how they've changed since World War II. Mm-hmm. It seems these wars that we fight since World War II have been... They haven't been designed to be won. They've been designed to be fought in a prolonged fashion. Uh, the war we're in now is the longest war in U.S. history and no no possible end in sight. Just an endless occupation with rules of combat that, that uh, tie the hands of our, our military people, uh, conflict them between civilians. They're, they're conflicted in a war where they're trying to win hearts and minds and yet defend their own lives and and aggressively pursue a, an enemy that blends into the population. It's a it's a no-win situation over there in Afghanistan. But Amen. aside from that, and it's an endless occupation in, in Iraq where we're really not wanted. But it's, mm. it's an ironic thing that when we change the name from the Department of War to the Department of Defense, it was actually <laughs> kind of a kind of a sick joke. Wow. It was kind of a sick joke because now. We don't fight for defense. We actually pursue, uh, you know, kind of endless military police occupation actions, and we're not actually pursuing the defense of our country. You're absolutely right. Uh, and when you stop to look at where we have been involved in combat, uh, you know, that becomes increasingly clear. We did Vietnam, uh, and then uh, after Vietnam, we did a Lebanon peacekeeping mission, allegedly, 1982-84. We invaded Grenada as part of Operation Urgent Fury, uh, and uh, we invaded Panama to oust uh, Manuel Noriega. We put 2.2 million soldiers in the Gulf War. Uh, then we got involved in a so-called peacekeeping mission in Somalia. Um, we were sent to Macedonia, Haiti, Bosnia for Operation Deliberate Force. Uh, the Kosovo War in 1999, America, one of a number of NATO countries that bombed Yugoslavia. And then in 2001 came the War on Terrorism and the Operation Enduring Freedom, wars that continue to this day. Uh, and so we've got 
we've had an, an unending stream uh, of non-defensive wars uh, ever, well, throughout my lifetime. Well, I, I that, that Afghan, well, I, I don't call it the Afghan war anymore. I call it the great American opium production enhancement conflict. Um, <laughs> but Nice. But uh, it seems to me that, that we just, it's almost like like the culling of the buck. It, these these design uh, these wars are designed to spend lots of money and to cull certain segments of the American population, oh, yeah. world population. I mean, yeah. you know, the million Afghans, a million Iraqis have died in in, in our conflict over there, and we really don't know what for. Well, sadly enough, Vinny, I mean, I appreciate your input, and uh, I wish I could continue with that, but we have to go to the break. So thanks for your input. Okay. I appreciate it. Stay tuned. We will be right back. It is already the third hour, and you and I have still so much to talk about, but I appreciate you doing it. Good morning to you. Good morning, you, Copas. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. You look at a three-hour block of time and wonder how in thunder you're ever going to fill it. Uh, and I had prepared an outline that uh, we're uh, lagging remarkably uh, far <laughs> behind. Uh, there's an awful lot that needs to be said and probably not enough time to do it. So yes. we'll just jangle along and do uh, you know, what we can. That's why. Uh, and I... it may be that we'll want to come back at a later time and yes. talk about uh, some of the stuff that we haven't been able to get uh, in this block. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a couple things I want to say. There is a... Uh, uh, there was a little article written in uh, on September 13, 2006, September 13, 2006, and it was called Report Dismisses Idea of Gulf War Syndrome. It says there is no such thing as Gulf War Syndrome, even though U.S. and foreign veterans of the war report more symptoms of illness than do soldiers who didn't serve there, a federally funded study cr- concludes. U.S. and foreign veterans of the Gulf War do suffer from an array of very real problems, according to the the Veterans Administration-sponsored report, which was released on Tuesday. This was Wednesday, September 13. Yet there is no one complex of symptoms to suggest those veterans, which is nearly 30% of all those who served, suffered or still suffer from a single identifiable syndrome. There is no unique pattern of symptoms. Every pattern identified in Gulf War veterans also seems to exist in other veterans, though it is important to know the symptom rate is higher. And it is a serious issue, said Dr. Lynn Goldman of Johns Hopkins University, who headed the Institute of Medicine committee that prepared the report. The VA contracted with the Institute, part of the National Academy of Sciences, to review scientific studies and probe the issue at the direction of Congress. Tuesday's report is the latest in the important series which DVA will rely on to determine whether Gulf War veterans are eligible for special disability benefits if they are found to suffer from illnesses that can be linked to their service. Veterans can now claim those benefits only by making an undiagnosed illness claim, said Steve Robinson, a Gulf War Army veteran and Government Relations Director for Veterans for America. So it seems to me just uh, three years ago, um, it, 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 it it wasn't really totally recognized. Is that your feeling when you hear this little report? Oh, absolutely. Um, the government has tried very hard to uh, downplay some of the you know, problems that have been obvious to, uh, to veterans for decades and decades and decades. 
you look at the Agent Orange syndrome uh, the, out of Vietnam, they denied for years and years and years, decades and decades and decades, uh, that Agent Orange uh, was a problem uh, for American troops. Uh, and it clearly, uh, uh, clearly, uh, our soldiers have suffered from that. And the government has denied it until finally it couldn't, uh, uh, it could deny no longer. Now that's recognized as a problem. Uh, I'm sure Gulf War syndrome as well, and probably will continue for decades yet to come. Yeah, the the uh, one thing that I wanted to bring up uh, many years ago, about eight years ago on this program, I had an interview with a lady by the name of Betty Martini, and Betty Martini has done uh, a ton of research on the effects of um, aspartame, NutraSweet, Equal, on the brain and on the nerve tissue. And she mentioned that uh, her study showed that, I mean, one of the things that she knew about the dangers that, uh, that it is a neurotoxin and that it actually can kill brain cells as well as affect the neurological system in general, uh, we do know that aspartame turns into formaldehyde at 89 degrees, where our body temperature is 98 degrees. So she had made a request to the government and said, if you're going to send our boys and girls soft drinks, do not send them diet sodas because those are sweetened with this artificial sweetener. Send them regular sodas because, as they say on pallets in the South Arabia sun, they're at 112 degrees, they are going to be turning into formaldehyde cocktails. And she mentioned that uh, the government didn't listen. They sent all these diet sodas to, uh, to Iraq and that time in Kuwait. But she mentioned that more than 20,000 soldiers have died after 1991 from the Gulf War with, with Gulf War syndrome that was un, um, they, they weren't able to describe exactly what it was, why these soldiers died, and they just called it Gulf War syndrome, even though in this article they deny that that really exists because they cannot really get a grab or get a hold on it. But it's interesting that the effects of that there may be effects linked to the use of aspartame. And we do know that our soldiers are probably not getting the healthiest food. They have a lot of variety and a lot, a lot of comfort food. So there are Pizza Hut and McDonald's and ice cream, etc. cetera. Uh, there is a lot of these uh, chains that have offered the services to, to feed our troops so that when they are, let's call it downtime, that they have comfort food as they know it in the United States. And sometimes you have to wonder what the effect of food or sweetness uh, could be on the brain, on the well-being of our soldiers as they try to battle through combat. And I, 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 I talked to a gentleman who is very familiar with the effect of essential fatty acids, and he says that uh, during the first war, World War I, uh, that there was a much higher number of uh, canned sardines going to our soldiers because there was not enough other food available, so they sent them a lot of canned food, but a lot of it was fish. And uh, that the some of the re- that the reports seem to be more positive to how student how soldiers came out of this war and how they handled themselves afterwards as far as the trauma was concerned. Where now it seems like we're not feeding our soldiers the uh, the, the the nutrition that they need in order to keep their brain and their emotions uh, healthy. It seems that it's a lot of comfort food there. What are, you have any insights in that, Eric? Sardines are absolutely wonderful. Uh, they're one of the best uh, brain foods that we know of today. Uh, they're rich in omega-3 fatty acids, uh, and the brain thrives on those. Uh, I uh, 
I eat them regularly, love them, uh, and uh, I think that I benefit as a result. Uh, you also, if you've seen the movie, um, uh, it's a video, uh, Super Size Me. I, uh, um, yes, I did watch it. Yeah, uh, and it showed what happened uh, when someone ate uh, uh, McDonald's uh, burgers and uh, and drank all that soda for 30 straight days. Yes. That ballooned up. Uh, yes. you know, they, they were afraid uh, that a straight diet of fast food was going to kill him. And I think that the uh, same thing happens to our soldiers. You know, they can't be eating that stuff and, uh, and staying healthy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's true and is a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sue called. Sue sent us another email. She said uh, her son was twi- is 21 years old, and she has another question. She was the one who was going into the uh, Marines soon. Uh, are there any supplements that soldiers can take to help strengthen or maybe encourage brain development or support of the brain after a sustained TBI? So actually, it's interesting that we're just talking about fish oil. Uh, absolutely, Sue, if I can answer that. Uh, T- uh, TBI... Uh, of course, the, 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 the situation is very complex, but do not give up on the essential fats. Uh, uh, the cod liver oil, essential fats such as the, the regular fish oil, very important. You're probably going to look at about a tablespoon a day. If uh, somebody goes to war, get the highest concentration of capsules that you can get to him. Uh, some of them have about 400 milligram of the EPA fat in one capsule, so you would have to give them about four capsules a day. The other one I highly recommend today, is because of the good research that was done on it, is vitamin D3. And I know of people who have dealt with uh, seasonal affective disorder, depression in general, just moodiness, even even war veterans. I, there's a gentleman I know who been in Vietnam. He claims that he has been exposed to Agent Orange. He has been dealing with depression and, and, and even sugar balancing issues for many decades. He started taking 10,000 units, IUs, 10,000 IUs of vitamin D3 a day and has seen remarkable improvement in both his mood as well as in his uh, blood sugar balancing, uh, which is another issue that hasn't really been brought up because many of our young kids, when they come back, they seem to be in such a great shape because of the battle and because of the food, the, the, the lack of food that they've had, that uh, it's hard to tell that they could actually be pre-diabetic. Uh, so lecithin is another one, a good fat for the brain, for the nerve tissue as well. And let's not forget the effects, the positive effects of B12 and uh, B12 and B complexes in general. Now, usually when you're dealing with a stress B complex, what happens is when the body is under stress, the first vitamin it loses actually is vitamin C. And so when you buy a B stress vitamin, that is usually a complex B vitamin with about a thousand milligrams of vitamin C involved. So uh, that is another thing. So we're looking at fish oils, we're looking at uh, lecithin, vitamin D3, close eight to 10,000 units a day. Uh, we also look at B-complex and vitamin C. So I would say those would be a phenomenal start for people just to keep the brain healthy and hopefully deal with some of the issues and stresses that come up. And, and you know, it does take discipline in many ways, but uh, this would be, these would be supplements. Uh, Eric, do you have any insights on this? Totally agree. Fish oil is, uh, is wonderful, and that would be my first recommendation also. 
Yeah, and the vitamin D, I don't know if you were, were aware of that, but you may do some research on it and, and see the great benefits uh, for that. Now, you also talk about some of the treatments that are available for our soldiers. Uh, you feel that the, uh, the, the VA really all, only offers conventional treatment, and that is really a lack, I think, as far as rebuilding the body is concerned. I completely agree. I talked with James Peake. Uh, when he was uh, VA secretary a couple of years ago. Basically, uh, uh, he's a medical doctor. He's very conventional. Uh, he was uh, um, kind of straight-laced about it. Uh, he told me that, uh, that he wanted to do unconventional things, but he wanted uh, to see that they were tested and proven first, uh, and that would take some time. So basically what uh, the VA was going to offer for the foreseeable future uh, was Uh, as your brain resets itself, 
those things uh, you could use for half a dozen or a dozen people. You could use it, uh, you know, uh, a dozen people could chip in and buy one of those things uh, and benefit from it. Oh, yeah, yeah, excellent idea. Just share there, it, yes. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Mm. Neurofeedback uh, is a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that is basically training the brain uh, to reset itself. I talked about neuroplasticity a bit ago. Uh, there is an absolutely wonderful book uh, by a doctor named Norman Deutsch, D-O-I, I think it's D-G-E. It's called The Brain That Changes Itself. And it argues convincingly that everything that we do, every thought we have, every action we take, changes the way in which uh, our brains operate. Deutsch... Um, uh, did some neuroimaging, for instance, uh, and discovered that that um, when his subject touched something with one finger, one area of his brain would light up. When he touched it with another finger, another area of the brain would light up. Uh, and so there were specific um, areas that were lit up as as each of these fingers touched something. Then he taped those fingers together. And uh, within just a few days, different areas of the brain were lighting up uh, when all four of the fingers touched something. Mm-hmm. Um, this would go a long way toward explaining why, for instance, people who are deaf uh, tend to have uh, better eyesight. Um, really? Or why people who uh, are blind have much better hearing. It's because there are more neurons uh, that shift their function and become available to work in different areas of the brain. So it uh, neurofeedback can be a, a very, very valuable uh, form of treatment. Yeah, I talked about mind-body bridging, um, uh, concentrating on the senses uh, to, to uh, stay in the present. Uh, there's also something called EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Yeah, that is which, wonderful. Yep. Wonderful stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, which is essentially... Um, 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 it seems like a type of hypnosis, but it really isn't. No, you it are really constantly isn't. Aware, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, basically, what you're doing is you're putting yourself into a trauma, um, reliving the things that uh, were problems, uh, and then um, shifting your eye focus, rolling your eyes, looking from left to right, uh, and uh, training your brain not to go back into that uh, that trauma again. Yes. Well, we have music again, Eric. Uh, when we come yep. back, uh, we I want to wrap this up with you for today. I know there is too much more that we can talk about. Uh, we mm-hmm. are talking, yeah, so we'll have to do another show with Eric to continue our talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury related to trauma in the body as well as through coming out of war. So make sure you stay tuned with us for the next half hour and check out his website in the meantime, ericnewhouse.com. Learn more about his book. And as we come back, we'll continue a little bit more with Eric. We'll be right back. We do have a caller, Eric, who would like to weigh in with you. Caller, thanks for joining us. Your name, please. How can we help you? Oh, hi. My name is Bill. Hello, Bill. I just want to recommend to the folks out there, if they want to read a book about the trials and tribulations of our soldiers, read uh, Lone Survivor by Marcus Luttrell. Lone Survivor. Uh, It'll give you a real insight into political correctness. Hmm. You know that book, Eric? 
Oh, sorry. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, it's, it's a book you'll never forget once you read it. So that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. Uh, Eric, we uh, sadly hadn't turned your volume on. Have you heard of that book before? Yeah, there, uh, there are a number of really good books out there. Um, I'm only one of them, uh, although I'm awfully glad to be one of them. Yeah, that's true, and I uh, like, I recommend people go to Eric's website, uh, ericnewhouse.com, and learn about it. We are, we're talking about the different uh, treatment options, and as Eric uh, finished up the last half hour, we talked about um, alpha stim and neurofeedback. Uh, also, we talked, uh, we touched on mind-body bridging, uh, concentrating on the senses to allow sleep. Uh, he mentioned eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is EMDR, uh, a treatment that we have talked about on this program before many years ago with Anne McLean. Uh, Anne McLean is uh, Dr. Anne McLean uh, in Bozeman who can help you with EMDR. And uh, we have another caller who would like to weigh in with us. Uh, caller, good morning. Your name, please. How can we help you? You're on the air with Eric Newhouse. Uh, this is Vernon. Hi, Vernon. Hey. Um, you have some regular callers uh, who haven't called in this morning, uh, who are connected with the brain injury recovery groups here in the Gallatin Valley. Uh, I think Tammy Hall is one of the people that's active in that group. Uh-huh. And um, I would just like to uh, remind everybody that, you know, soldiers are not the only ones who get traumatic brain injuries. There are people who fall on the ice and people who have car wrecks uh, whose brain gets splashed. Uh-huh. Um, and they have uh, profound um, consequences to those. And there's a very active and helpful uh, network of people in our community, and I'm I'm sorry I don't personally have any information about it, but uh, a little bit of digging. Um, I, I just uh, encourage anybody who has uh, issues with this to to get in touch with their local recovery group because they do address uh, the various uh, things that people go through. Uh, and uh, as from what I can tell, they're very effective in our community. Hmm. And um, not only uh, traumatic brain injury, but also uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it's not that's not merely a uh, military phenomenon. Everyone who's been traumatized, uh, uh, raped, held up, beaten, uh, uh, neglect, uh, um, child abuse. Yeah, yeah I'm not aware of a 10%. support network for that in our community, but I am aware of our brain brain recovery okay. uh, uh, group. Hmm. Well, Good wonderful folks to have. Uh, yes. It is a, a serious problem, and you're absolutely right. It's, it's not just military. Both of these uh, phenomena can, uh, can happen in the civilian population as well. Well, and I think, Vernon, uh, the issue that we live in a rural state where, relatively speaking, percentage-wise, quite a few young men and women are active in active duty or have been, have been involved in war percentage-wise, probably more than you find in some of the bigger cities. We uh, Actually, uh, Jacobus, yes. uh, Montana has the second highest rate of veterans per capita uh-huh. of any state in the country. Uh, we're surpassed only by Alaska. Is that I right? I believe that. Wow. And, mm-hmm. and, well, that's uh, that's quite a statistic here. Uh, I, I believe, therefore, and, and I'm grateful also, Vernon, what you are saying that there is indeed a network available locally. I am aware that there is a network, um, and more sm- more cities over here in, in Montana have active participants in these programs, and that is the great thing that we do have in the state, that people are very proactive uh, when it comes to uh, helping others. Uh, as sparsely populated as we are and as wide apart as we are, uh, there is great support for each other. Good show, gentlemen. Yeah, thank you so much for your input. Uh, I do want to mention that we we uh, 
to sidestep just a little bit from the topic, uh, if we can do that, just that. You are a Pulitzer Prize winner. And for your great work on, on alcoholism uh, that you have done, the book Alcohol, Cradle to Grave, there is a new book that you're writing, and that is called Nearly Knighted. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, an interesting book because it uh, just came out about two weeks ago, and it's totally electronic. Uh, you get it on something called smashwords.com. And it's the story of what, ha- what happened to me after the Pulitzer Prize. It talks about uh, how I learned, to my incredible surprise, uh, that I was the second Montanan uh, in the state's history to have won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, and what it meant to, to me and to my life for the next uh, 18 months after uh, I won the prize. Uh, it, it looks at uh, all the hoopla, all the traveling, uh, all the honors, all the uh, speeches, but it also looks at uh, at a time in my life when I was trying to do some really, really serious reporting about uh, mental illness in the Montana correctional system and how the correction system handled mental illness. Uh, and I was being pulled away to go speak here and go speak there and uh, and my heart was uh, in Deer Lodge because I really wanted to be dealing with the uh, you know, with the inmates there and finding them the help that they needed. Yeah. So it's uh, it's uh, it's one it's it's it, one about mixed uh, mixed feelings, mixed emotions. Enormously mixed emotions uh, and very confusing at times. Uh, but it uh, it's a real life look at what happens to somebody uh, who all of a sudden gets the brass ring and doesn't know quite how to cope with it. Huh. The, uh, the book opens uh, with uh, uh, a description of how I came to win the Pulitzer Prize, uh, and it actually uh, came about because after I did the series on alcoholism, uh, I said to my editor, uh, what do we do now? And he looked kind of vague and said, well, maybe we ought to enter some prizes. Uh, we might win some. <laughs> and I thought to myself, he sounded, you know, not terribly convinced. So I said, well, you know, I'll just take that on myself. So I did. I entered uh, surprises, but I also figured I'd never worked so hard in my life. I never wanted to again. And why didn't I shoot for the Pulitzer, which is the big award in journalism? Yeah. So since I didn't want people to laugh at me when I failed, uh, I did all that at home. Uh, I entered uh, the... I submitted the entry from home. I wrote a personal check for 50 bucks, uh, the entry fee, and just sent it in with a letter and all the stuff, uh, and then put it out of my mind. And on the, I guess, the first Tuesday in April of uh, 2000, I'd just come out of an interview uh, with about five social workers uh, talking about um, methamphetamines and what they were doing to... Uh, the dissolution of the family and the need for more foster homes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was trying to sit and make some sense out of that. Uh, when the phone rang, I picked it up and somebody said, this is so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so from CBS Radio News in New York City, and we'd like your reaction. Well, I thought about it, and I said, sure, reaction to what? And uh, the guy said, well, the Pulitzer Prize, you are aware that you won a Pulitzer Prize, aren't you? Well, we've got some jokers in this newsroom, and I looked around <laughs> to see who was pulling my leg, and I couldn't find anybody who uh, looked as though he was uh, even giggling at me. So I said to this voice on the telephone, yeah, sure, 
I'll call you boys back in the morning. Hung up on him. Uh, and then uh, walked around the newsroom to see uh, who the culprit was. Couldn't find anybody. Sat down at my uh, computer, plugged into the uh, main national A-wire, and saw bullet, Pulitzer, bullet, Pulitzer, bullet, Pulitzer, Newhouse. <laughs> and just froze. You know that moment when it's like your suspended knife. Yeah. You can't breathe, you can't think, you can't move, you can't do anything. Yeah. And as I was sitting there in total shock, the phone rang again. Uh, and uh, I picked it up automatically. A voice said, this is so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so from CBS Radio News in New York City. We really need to talk to you. And I said, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then told him something that I had no recollection of uh, and uh, went down the hall to begin to tell the people uh, uh, in the Tribune that we'd won the Pulitzer Prize. It was only the second Pulitzer in Montana's history. Is that the, right? uh, Yeah, the uh, little weekly newspaper uh, up in uh, uh, Big Fork, Montana, won the Pulitzer in 1964 for covering uh some of the flooding that uh, in western Montana, and there's been no other uh, since then until uh, we won it in 2000. Wow, wow, that is uh, that is quite something. Now, Eric, when you win a Pulitzer, I mean, how many times can people say that? Um, <laughs> is it based on based on the fact that you've written this book, that you wrote the new book, uh, the totally of a nearly knighted, nearly knighted, and then we have the, the 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 book on faces of combat, and 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 besides that, all your investigative work and 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 crusading work as a journalist for the Great Falls Tribune, is it just another milestone for you, or is it was it actually that you feel you stepped up? A platform, and you never, you you just don't look back. You move on, uh, starting at a new at a new height. Uh, how does uh, which of the two is it? It's life changing. It's um, life changing, huh? It's life changing. One of uh, I remember being in the newsroom, and uh, by this time uh, the calls were flooding in. I was talking to the New York Times. Uh, we had the Boston Globe and the Los Angeles Times on hold waiting to talk to me. Um, and since then, it's like the gold star of approval that they put on your forehead. Um, it is like being knighted. Uh, and all of a sudden, you've got an audience, you've got a forum, you've got the gold star of approval, uh, and people seek you out uh, to do things, to talk about things, uh, to work on things. Um you have a ready audience. Uh, you can walk into virtually any room, uh, and uh, and people listen to you with respect. It it literally changes your life. Hmm. But and it, you know the yeah, but the I, funny I thing, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I want to hear uh, this. The funny thing was uh, that after this day, this first day, uh, and I uh, I went home just exhausted. Uh, called my parents, called my kids, um, and. Then uh, they had, uh, C-SPAN had asked whether they could interview me at 7 o'clock Eastern Time live, uh, which would be 5 o'clock Montana time. Yes. And I'd said, sure. So at about 4 o'clock, the alarm clock went off, and I woke up, and I sat in that, uh, in that pre-dawn stillness 
uh, and darkness and began thinking to myself, is this really a dream? Mm-hmm. That I just had the damnedest dream of my life. Uh, and the more I thought about it, the more I wasn't sure. Uh, and so as 5 o'clock came, I began to wonder whether the phone would ring. Uh, and I said, uh, all of a sudden it did. And there was the uh, voice from C-SPAN. And I said, you know, I was wondering if this was just a dream. The voice on the other end said, oh, no, Mr. Newhouse, you're on the front page of the New York Times this morning. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, is, uh, that is indeed life-changing, isn't it? But, yeah, it really is. But, you know, then, yeah, I'll, then I'll listen to you, Eric. And, and you, you're talking uh, after we had our interview about the... Uh, the actual book, uh, Alcohol, Cradle to Grave, your Pulitzer Prize-winning book. And I talked to you years later, and you tell me about Bill Broderson, the man who is the primary uh, character, not just character, but he's a real-life person in Great Falls, how you still meet with him. And and that that shows me, and and as you're talking about the stories in this book, how you are connecting with the people that you are writing about in in this book, Faces of Combat, you just love people. You th- so that part hasn't changed about you. You're still yeah. the the guy next yeah. door, and mm-hmm. and here you are at the top of the world in your field and get all the respect that is due to you. But at the same time, you still just want to connect with everybody who you are writing about because their struggles continue. Bill Broderson uh, became the poster child for alcoholism. Very bright, very witty, uh, very flawed human being, but no malice in him. And he became a friend. Uh, and even after I quit writing about him, uh, I'd take him to doctor's appointments uh, and help him understand what was happening to him. I took him to his last doctor's appointment, uh, and he had open sores on his leg. The doctor looked at him and said, well, we've got a choice. Uh, we can do some aggressive treatment uh, and try and... Uh, and uh, correct those, or we can uh, just give you some pain medication uh, and let nature take its course. Are you ready to die? And he said, you know, there are some friends I'll miss, but uh, yeah, I'm not any good to anyone here. I'm just taking up space, uh, wasting resources. I'm ready to go. Hmm. So he and I uh, went to the hospital, uh, and then I took him over to uh, uh, to the hospice place, um, and um, came to visit the next couple of days. On the third day, uh, I went at noon, and he was sleeping. Uh, and I thought, gee, I said something to him, and he didn't wake up. And I thought, well, he's getting a good sleep. Came back at about 5 o'clock, and uh, his his snoring was a little raspier, but he was still there. And I uh, said to him, Bill, are you okay? And he just kept on sleeping. I didn't realize that he was in a coma. And he was dying. Is that right? Uh, and so about uh, two hours later, I got a call from hospice. Um, I was the first call. Uh, you know, they, I, I was the person who was responsible. And so they called me and said, uh, Mr. Brodus passed away uh, about 10 minutes ago. Huh. Uh, and that was, uh, the book has been, the book Alcohol Cradle to Grave is out as a hardback, but it's also out as a paperback. And the paperback, uh, looks at Broderson and what the last years of his life were like, uh, and also closes the chapter uh, with his death. How old was uh, Bill? Bill was, I think, 54, looked to be about 70. So he never 
he never was able to uh, to beat the alcoholism? No, he died an alcoholic. In fact, he uh, uh, had a 12-pack of beer that uh, he carried into the hospice uh, and managed to drink two cans of it before uh, before he died. And I took the uh, remaining 10 cans and took them down to uh, some of the some of his friends and said, well, drink this in memory of Bill. Huh. You're an amazing man, Eric. That is uh, quite a story, my goodness. And this was how long yeah. ago now? How many years? A couple of years ago? Yeah, this was uh, in 2000 and, uh, 2006. 2006. Yeah. Oh, wow. No, I've been, I learned a lot from Bill, and I owe him a lot. Uh, that was that was the best that I could do was to be a friend and be there when he needed me and uh, and help him in every way that I could. Mm-hmm. Try not to enable him. Uh, I told him early on uh, that I would buy him lunch and buy him dinner anytime he wanted it. I'd buy him coffee, but I'd never buy him an alcoholic beverage because I didn't want to be a party to his suicide. Right. And he uh, understood that. Uh, never got a little angry sometimes because he wanted a drink and I wouldn't give it to him, but I bought him orange juice and coffee and lunch and uh, and just was there for him every time I could. Mm. But you've also, when you were talking earlier about uh, some of the symptoms of PTSD, uh, the anger issue when you talked about Dave and Daniel Belcher, uh, yeah. you also mentioned uh, that you were sitting down with Danielle and, and just say, what do you want to do? You want to you wanna be angry or... Would you rather, you know, try to get over this? And that that shows to me that you're not just an investigative reporter, but you are really compassionate with the people you're writing about because they teach you something and they they make you aware of things. And it, it uh, you know, it's not just brain for you. There's a lot of heart there too. Oh yeah, there's a huge amount of heart. Um, not only a reporter, but I'm a human being as well. And sometimes the two of those uh, conflict. And I need to, uh, need to, I've learned over the years that uh, when my heart tells me that uh, I need to do something different, I have to listen to that. And in fact, that uh, that saved me the Pulitzer Prize. I was faced with a situation where uh, the ethical standards of journalism suggested I do one thing. Um, sheer compassion uh, suggested I do another I did the latter uh, and uh, told my editors later what I had done, but the alcoholics that I was talking with came back later and said, you know, if you had uh, not done what you had done, none of us would ever have spoken to you again. And this was uh, about five months into a 12-month series of stories. Um, I know now that had I made the other choice, uh, I never would have been able to finish that series of stories. And I never would have uh, gotten the Pulitzer Prize either. It mm. just was a crucial moment, uh, and it taught me that uh, in an ethical situation, you have to listen to your heart and you have to do what's right. Yeah, and then if the Pulitzer Prize comes, that will be great. But the bottom line is, you have to live with mm. yourself the rest of your life. Yeah, and to be honest with you, I never thought about a prize until after the series was done, uh, and I looked at it and said, "Wow, that's pretty amazing stuff," uh, and thought, "Well." I'll shoot for it, um, and it was a huge surprise uh, to actually hit that brass ring. Hmm. Well, congratulations. I, I know that all the listeners who are listening today uh, congratulate you on your success, 
and are grateful that you have written the books that you have written. And uh, my goodness, I, uh, is there anything else? Uh, I mean, for you, it, it just doesn't stop because it's in you so much. I mean, 40 years of journalism is uh, a phenomenal history. And uh, what, what I like about it also is that you write stories that are all close to home. And, and because they're so close to home, anybody can recognize themselves in your story or understand what's going on. You know, I, I look at some of the other issues that we can discuss today that we should have been discussing, but nothing that you said was wasted on my ears. And I know that many people are listening to this and say, my goodness, you know, they're scratching their heads and say, this is something I, I uh, you know, even if nothing else, pray about it. If you if you believe in prayer, just go ahead and pray about it and and, and, and learn. All right, Eric, all the best to you. Sorry, we we'll run out of time, but we'll do it again soon. That sounds like a deal. Jacobus, thank you for the opportunity. I hope we've uh, helped some kids today. Yes, I hope so too. Folks, we'll be back next week Sunday. Talk to you then.